Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. My name is Adrian Thomas, I'm Director of Communications and Public Affairs. Um, I'd like to thank you all for joining us this evening to celebrate the opening of our new media studio. Next year in 2015, we see the 120th anniversary of the school's foundation, founded not merely to provide an education for the few who would take courses and attend lectures, but for the betterment of all society. From the earliest days, reaching out to a non-academic audience and pioneering new branches of learning and new ways of sharing knowledge. The disciplines of international relations, social policy, sociology, and indeed criminology, all have their roots at the LSE. Many eminent journals were founded here, and for many years our public lectures programme has delivered high-profile and highly engaging debate open to all. So, in many ways, the studio follows in a fine tradition of the LSE simply doing what the LSE does. But it's also a huge step forward for us. It's a truly cutting-edge facility for the production and post-production of digital video. With capability for both recording and broadcasting, it enables LSE academics to undertake interviews with broadcasters from around the world, hugely increasing our reach. And it will help us produce films, animations and podcasts to enhance our digital communications and provide underpinning for our social media engagement. We want it to be a vital resource for LSE staff, and we have plans to make the facility available for commercial use, full details of which can be found on the LSE website. Uh, I should point out it's already received very high praise from a visiting Radio 4 production team, so uh, we're taking that as a, a very good omen. Uh, but rather than me talk about what it offers, uh, better to see it firsthand. Uh, actually, a member of the team has pulled together a short video, so we'd like to play that now for you and uh, give you a first-hand taste. Media Studio was designed to provide the school with professional video, television and radio production facilities capable of meeting today's challenging media environment. The studio has two broadcast cameras but can handle up to four and additional cameras are regularly hired in to accommodate specific projects. Pictures and sound can be mixed live on the studio's 8-channel vision switcher and 16-channel audio mixer drastically reducing or totally eliminating the need for time-consuming editing. Talkback to presenter and cameras provides an all-important link with the gallery so directors can control the action as it develops. Interviews and debates with a maximum of four participants are now relatively quick and easy to produce. Pre-edited films can be played into a live discussion, making it possible to create complex programmes that closely emulate television news and current affairs. The studio is equipped with autocue, which vastly simplifies the job of presenting to camera. A green screen allows a maximum of one contributor or interviewee to be superimposed over any background, so it's possible, for example, to create presentations in which a lecturer appears in front of his or her support material. The studio has a direct video line into the broadcast television network, allowing academics to be interviewed live by news and current affairs programmes all over the world without ever leaving campus. It also has a dedicated ISDN line for live radio interviews. 
A video edit suite equipped with Avid and Premiere Pro completes the lineup, providing a cost-effective one-stop production shop that's fully equipped to tackle all of your video, TV and radio needs. The facility was opened earlier today by Roger Grave, and it is a great honour for me to welcome him to the LSE and thanking, thanking him for, t- for the time he has given us in his busy schedule. As I'm sure you are, Roger is a criminologist and filmmaker. Born in New York, he moved to Britain in 1962, where after nine years directing the theatre, he moved to documentaries. He was a pi- pioneer of the Fly in the War School of Unstaged obs- Observational Films. <coughs> inside normally closed institutions such as the UN, the EU, British Steel, government ministries, prisons, hospitals and care homes, making many award-winning and groundbreaking documentaries. He's made films in the arts, current affairs, science, as well as making innumerable films in criminology, and he's currently visiting professor at the Mannheim Institute for Criminology here at the LSE. Roger is a founding board member of Channel 4 and a governor of the British Film Institute. In 2004, he was awarded a BAFTA Fellowship for Lifetime Achievement, the only documentary maker to have received that accolade. He was awarded an OBE in the 2006 New Year's Honours List for services to broadcasting. In May, BAFTA devoted an entire tribute evening to his 50 years in documentaries. This evening, Conor Gerty, the Institute of Public Affairs Director and Professor of Human Rights here at the LSE, will be in conversation with Roger about his films, the impact they've had, and the challenges faced by filmmakers today. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Media Studio. I would ask you please to put your phones on silent. This evening's event is being recorded and a video and a podcast will be available. Thank you very much. As usual, I should say, as usual, after the conversation there will be a chance uh, to put a question directly to Roger and to Connor. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you very much, uh, Adrian. I'm going to take my jacket off. Uh, the hashtag is so long, there's going to be nothing to comment on. <laughs> haiku, haiku, that's what we're talking Yeah, well, of course, the, coo- tweet, the coolest to be haiku. tweet, absolutely, have you got one? Yes, no room for wise words in this space. <laughs> <laughs> that is not pre-prepared. No, it isn't. Uh, We've got... Is, where's the clock? Is there, there it is, yeah. We, 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 there's a drink outside about half seven. You can all share the drink. We're issuing straws. <laughs> so uh, don't ask any questions. <laughs> so what we thought we'd do is uh, we'd start with a conversation between Roger and myself. But uh, we've got Tom over here, and I really felt that we should have a look at some of Roger's work as well. So we've cut some segments of that work and uh, we're going to interweave some of that in our discussion. And broadly, through what you see, have a very strong visual sense of the kind of thing that he's been able to do. I have to warn you, uh, for some of you, some of it is quite upsetting. And in particular, the first clip, which is about the way in which the police handle uh, rape complainants, is actually very disturbing. So I just want you to have a heads up about that. It's very... 
iconic and extraordinary uh, program, which Roger will talk about. And uh, it's, uh, however, uh, for some people with perhaps experiences of this kind of thing, can be very upsetting. I might as well tell you just to give you a sense of that. Actually, it upset the whole country. It It upset the whole country. Mm. Uh, Why this country, Roger? I I mean, why England? I mean, this is bizarre. 1964, New York Theatre. And you suddenly come over here. Was it some uh, relationship issue? No, 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 it wasn't. What was it about? It it seems to me as an Irishman quite irrational. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, there were two things that um, that drove me here. First of all, I grew up in New England and had a kind of uh, Anglophilia injection from early on, rather long with, you know, chicken pox and monks, mumps mm-hmm. and measles and so on. Right? That anglophilia mm-hmm. very... Um, but that kind of inoculates you against any subsequent no, 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 outbreaks. No. Well, that's that. true, yes. It didn't in my case. Um, no, because um, I came over in the summer of, of 1956, when I was my stu- my junior year, to study Titus Andronicus and the Tempest, which were being... The te- Titus Andronicus were being done at Stratford and Avon. I was going to direct it. I started directing already very, very young, actually. I was 19 or something. And um, can you imagine? Peter Brook directing Laurence Olivier in Titus. John Gielgud directing Laurence Olivier and others in uh, Twelfth Night. Vivian Lee there. The whole th- I mean, and it was a beautiful summer, and I was 20 years old, and I fell in love with England, English women, the whole rhythm of England, <clears throat> the culture. I went to the theatre every single night in London, and I just thought, this is it. This is yeah. the, the bee's knees. And although I was <clears throat> lucky in New York, I started directing very young. And <clears throat> I will tell a quick story because it's rather a nice example. I had done a, um, a few plays at Harvard and then went down and did an off-Broadway play of Gogol's The Gamblers. And through my agent, I managed to get somebody from the actor's studio to come and see the play. And it had gotten very good reviews, and I was feeling pretty cocky the way one does as a young director from Harvard. I mean, it was really not okay. Anyway, this guy comes, and we have a drink afterwards, and I said, well, what do you think, what do you think? And he said, it's crap. He said, completely overacted, overstaged, you know, just, just no reality to it at all. And I had the wisdom, or wit, or whatever, to say to him, ah, oh, not rather, you know, rather than sort of being offended, I just said, oh, okay, how do I learn? And he said, well, you better come to the actor's studio. So I was invited in as an observer for four years to watch the best actors in America, because I... Directed yeah. a crap play. Yeah. Um, and so I've always tried to turn failure to some kind of advantage. Um, and I've learned a lot from failure, actually. Yeah. I, I commend it to everybody, as long as your attitude's okay. But it's, it's interesting, because that sounds like a track which would cause you then to come over to England and then hook up with the theatre people I did. and do these amazing theatre productions, etc., and become a doyen of the English theatre. Uh, I, no, I know you did for a little while, but you shifted to TV in the mid-60s. No, it was because no. I had another failure. And that was the thing. I mean, um, I had a play at the Royal Court, which uh, happens, long story, I won't tell you tonight, but I, I was a week off the boat just having come here, and by chance, they, Peter Yates, the famous director now, got a job directing a movie, and I happened to know the play, and so one thing or another, I, I was offered this play at the Royal Court. So I get off the boat, a week later, I'm directing at the Royal Court. Fantastic, <laughs> right? And then people are starting to offer me amazing yeah. offers of one kind or another, and I have the next two years, having directed by then 26 plays, two operas, and two television dramas, I then didn't do anything while I was sort of hustling this project. And um, I took the offer of the backing for a play I was trying to do with Anthony Poles from a crook, David Pelham, who was famously a crook, but also a producer. And his flat was used by Mandy Rice Davis, 
wow. for little visits from uh, various famous folk, yeah. some of whom lived in Buckingham Palace and so on, you yeah. know, and film stars and everything else. Anyways, he was just a crook, but it was yeah. very much the swinging 60s. I was right in the middle of it. And um, because he was a crook, it was a flop. And I'd never had a flop before. Yeah. I mean, apart from I mean, the, the other play, which the guy didn't like, actually was a success. So I was so shocked by wasting two years of my life. I rang up the Thalidomide Society and said, look, do you want to benefit at the Palladium? I'm just, you know, pissing away my life. I've got to do something useful. And they said, no, 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 we just want a little film for the head teachers of infant schools and primary schools to see our kids who had no arms and no legs, but they had brains. And they should be allowed into these schools because they use more of their brains than normal kids. So that was my first film, this little film. In about what, 67? 65. 65. No, 64. It's 50 years. It's 64. Because yeah. I came in 62, and I did a couple of plays. And, so this so is 64. Long before the Thalidomide issue was no one around. No, 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 it had broken. Had it. But yeah. these were the parents' yeah. society, okay? Yeah. So this is a film designed for about 12 people, okay? And I just did, I did something which is part of this conversation today. I was going to make a really Brechtian film about handicap and what it means and so on. And a guy, a friend of mine, another example of my failure turning into something useful... Um, a, a guy who was um, actually Orson Welles' editor and then became Desmond Wilcox's partner in television, he read this script and he said, this is, again, it's crap. He said, tell the story of a nice, ordinary kid with no arms to another child, to a nine-year-old, to an intelligent nine-year-old. Just tell that story, okay? So I did, and it's called One of Them is Brett. And that was, I just, I found this rather attractive kid who happens to have no arms, very cheerful, sweet boy, and followed, watched him fight with his brothers and with his feet, wash the dishes with his feet, and have a completely cheerful childhood. Right? Were you conscious at the time that this was a new... I, I don't know if it was a new, a new telling, but a new way of using form? Yes, because I had, as while still directing in theatre, I had learned from uh, Lee Strasberg at the, at the Actors Studio about something which he called significant detail. Right? And so character... the. The method, the acting method, Stanislavski method, which was developed there, not developed, but further advanced there, um, was based on finding characteristics, like how you hold your hands or whether you cross your legs or what you're wearing and so on, that tell you something about the character more than just the lines. And they try and look at the reality of their lives, imagine their home life, imagine how they brush their teeth, you know, all that sort of thing. Anyway, I saw a film called um, One More River, um, which was no commentary, Nothing but just um, observational footage from the South of the United States about the civil rights display. And in this very powerful film, with no commentary at all, was a scene with two rednecks. And I grew up in the New York liberal East Coast you know, household. And what I knew about the South, very, very small, and it was full of cliches. And these two guys were allowed to talk for nearly six or seven minutes, and which on film is a lot. And they talked about what it's like to be a redneck, to be hated, to become, you know, literally the sort of public enemy of, the, uh, of all the liberal slot. And just, I mean, they just talked about being who they were. Mm. And I suddenly realized in that moment that not staging anything, that just watching them, just listening to them, by, just by listening, you, all my preconceptions were tested and quite a lot of them junk. And that, I just thought that's the most powerful way to communicate. So was it a kind of double jump, Roger, from it's not theatre for me, it's film, and, hey, it's, it's a certain oh, kind of film. Yes, yeah. it was. 
And the Canadians did, did they were the ones who really developed Fly on the Wall. I don't know if you've ever, any of you have ever seen Lonely Boy, but also Pennebaker's films, uh, D.A. Pennebaker's and um, uh, his partner, whose name has gone out of my head, they were making films like Primary mm-hmm. with Humphrey and Kennedy. And so, you know, I mean, they developed the, the cameras very specifically. So you, you're in reference to this. The cameras prior to that needed a tripod. They were heavy. You had to have separate sound, but, you know, linked up. Sorry, it, was wire, it had to be wired and so on. And suddenly in the 60s, um, a French company called Atom developed this very lightweight camera. And the Aeroflex people also developed one that you could just put on your shoulder and and follow people around. Prior to that, you couldn't do that. And so suddenly the equipment was small enough, portable enough, and flexible enough so that you could start to be a fly on the wall. And then, still, we were cabled, right? And I will just tell you a quick story about this because it's rather wonderful. We were making a film with John Huston, and he was directing an opera at La Scala. And he's, um, he said, come on, guys, you know, come on down to the La Scala. you will be no problem. He hadn't asked that. We get there, and the intendant says, yes, Mr. Houston wants you there. You can have access to the rehearsals, but on opening night, you're outside with the paparazzi, and that's that, okay? So accepted what he offered us. First week, we're very discreet. We don't use no lights. We're using this very lightweight equipment, and it's all very easy and friendly, and everybody likes us. We go back because we can't afford to stay for three weeks, and in the second week, um, NBC and CBS, and I think even ABC, all turn up because... Houston had just done the robe, no, the, uh, the Bible in Rome and was a very big, you know, hotshot filmmaker. So they all turned up and said, we want access to the stage. We're going to get, re- get rid of all these sets, Flying Dutchman, whatever that. We want a TV studio, right? <coughs> they pissed off everybody in the entire <coughs> opera house. So when we came back to do the last few days and the dress rehearsal, <coughs> they said, benvenuti, you know, fr- amici, you know. Yeah. We were suddenly loved, right? And so not only did we have the run of the place, um, the intendant said, do you have a dinner jacket? We said, yes, we're going to go to the opening night party. He said, no, no, fine, I've saved your seats in the front row in the theatre, and you can go backstage, right? So Anna Magnani, Eva Gardner, all his sort of Houston's friends were there, right? And we're just filming a moment, nobody notices, paparazzi are all outside, we're inside, okay? So then we're sitting filming the first act of the opera, and the intendant, by then, has actually locked himself in his room uh, because they're booing. But um, nobody else knows that. And uh, he sends somebody to us and said, do you want to film the curtain call? Right? I said, yes, that'd be great. So he means on stage. So in the way opera, in the, before the last one, you know, they come out in front of the curtain, right? They don't just, uh, they don't pull the curtain open, but the stars and the director. So we go up, and the stars go out onto the... It's so the opening night, La Scala, right? You know, everybody's in Tinjacks. And Houston comes out, starts to bow, and out comes me and my camera <laughs> in our dinner jackets with this gear, and we're filming. Solid Absolutely unbelievable. And the, and the uh, people at the top are booing and throwing things. And it, was, it was Richard Ronnie Bennett's um, <laughs> opera, The Mines of Sulfur, I Minerli di Zolfo. And the Italians don't much like modern opera, and they certainly don't like British modern opera, and so on. So they were booing, hissing, saying it stinks of sulfur and throwing things. Houston, indifferent, because he doesn't speak uh, Italian and doesn't read music, is bowing and loving every minute. <laughs> and, um, and I say to Charles Stewart, my great colleague, pan the golden horseshoe, because all of the people at the top, the people at the bottom, are looking like 
they've just swallowed a frog because they've never seen anything like that happen. And on the top, there's this booing and hissing going on, right? So I said to him, just pan, right? And then I look into the wings, and I see the stage manager. And talk about swallowing a frog, he'd swallowed a shark. He was so angry and so upset and puzzled as to what, you know, basically, what, what are these guys doing on my stage? That he rushes out and grabs me, okay, in front of everybody this is, right? I'm with the microphone, and the cable between us was nice and loose, but um, as he pulls me off the stage, it gets tauter and tauter, right? I'm not joking. It gets tighter and tighter, and I keep saying, Charles, just keep going, keep going, right? And I've got my feet, like a Mickey Mouse cartoon, or, you know, <laughs> red, red, what was called Roadrunner. Roadrunner's always been escaped. And my feet are like that, right? In front of the entire opening night audience, <laughs> I am being pulled off stage with my microphone as this cable, you know, just gets tighter and tighter. And just as it gets tight, Charles finishes the pan. So if you, fi- if you see the film, you'll know no one would ever realize yeah. what was going on because it's a perfect pad, very yeah. calm. And, very, and that's cinema verite for yeah. you. You take any opportunity as it comes. And you spot it on the moment. Yes. What, what gave you... We'll get on to the uh, allegation Sorry, of rape. digression, but... No, it's, it's not. No. It's germane. Because we'll get on to the allegation against rape clip in a minute, I think, Tom, but... What gave it's not you as funny as that. the idea? <laughs> I, I'm trying to spend some time before we get to it. But what gave you the idea of going into subjects which had that kind of realistic dimension? Did that just grow? Because this one is about 1980, but you've done lots before. Lots. Before. Uh, and, and was it a conscious idea? Hey, I will use this amazing method to achieve change. Or yes. So tell yes. me about how that. Well, actually, I never finished the story about the Thelizmite film. Well, that was sent to a couple of festivals. And it won prizes. This was my first film. And the BBC bought it. ABC Network bought it. And so suddenly this film, that was meant to be for like 10 head teachers, was on the American ABC Network, CBC, BBC, and it went straight into the medical school curriculum because nobody who had worked with these kids knew what they were like at home. Right? They were only patients. They were only kids with no arms. They were, you know, victims, if you like. Whereas actually, Brett was having a wonderful time. And as I say, he was washing dishes with his feet and beating up his brothers. There was a marine ex-marine correspondent from the CBC. When he came to the viewing and saw this, this, you know, this fight with his feet and his brothers, he left the room. He said, this is too shocking. He was a marine. Yeah. And this, his attitude towards disability was such that this film became a totem of how to accept disability, live with it, and make it possible. So from yeah. the very start, you glimpsed the potentiality. The potential. That, and that's why I stayed with documentaries yeah. and vowed I will only make films that change something. It's a, I mean, my arts films were an attempt to change people's attitude towards art yeah. and towards you know, the challenge of Pierre Boulez, for example, with music. And what I was using the work for was to learn. Right? So I go to Boulez and say, look, I can read music, I can play music, but I don't understand your music. Yeah. Explain it to me. Yeah. And then the film I made with him was used for years later by PBS, who was co-production, whenever they had a contemporary piece of music in a program. They would put this on in the middle just to say, this is, these are the rules. Yeah. Of, and so that, what I was always trying to do was change attitudes. Yeah. Whatever the subject was, is change attitudes. Uh, we, we get out in the Q&A with me to whether that can be done today, who commissioned, has, the, has it changed? But what I want you to talk about now as we intro the clip is... As you, you got 
uh, what the telly people call, I guess, access mm-hmm. to... Was it the police force, Thames Valley Police? Or, yes. And, but I'll, okay, I will... Yeah. I have been making... No, sorry, it, it just... I know this is compressed, and I don't know if you've got the background, but what I started to do in 68, really, apart from having worked with all these musicians and architects and things like that... Um, no, it was actually later than that. It was about 71. I made the first film on is, uh, Islam as well in, uh, in Morocco, um, mm-hmm. which was very interesting. That was access to, to Fez and the work there. But I, I was asked to do a series on the English language. And I thought, mm-hmm, yes, that's really hard. Okay? And I um, thought about it. And then I, because this, in the early 70s, as uh, some of you in the room will remember, Communication was the vogue, right? Everybody talked about communication. <coughs> Theory, studies, psycholinguistics, all this stuff, right? And I was reading psycholinguistics uh, from time to time and found it interesting stuff, but hard. I couldn't imagine visualizing the data, as you would say, right? Um, and then I suddenly thought, why don't I just watch communication at work in five situations where we assume that it works, but they don't, we don't think about it. So it was family, school, work, politics and diplomacy. And in the course of making these five films, we got access to um, the Plessy Factory for work, um, the Ackland Burley School in Kentish Town for school, um, a family in therapy uh, for family, and that was communications analysis there with uh, R.D. Lang's partner, and politics to the U.S. Senate, with Mondale trying to communicate with Nixon, and the U.N. So these five films, which I will give you, for the library here, if they're not already in it, were a way of just using observation to try and give you know, the audience the tools to understand communication in an untheoretical way, but then draw meaning from it. And so in virtually all the films we used in training years later, because they were just access films. Then I did the same thing with the EU at the time of the referendum. Nobody knew how the EU worked, so we were given access, and we filmed a decision being made right through to the top. And uh, with the government, the British government, we were the first ones given access to the British government. And we filmed a, a decision in the DTI for four months. And then, would you believe, the British Communist Party. We filmed for two years as they said they wanted to be Euro-communist. And I said, okay, I don't understand how a revolutionary party can be Euro-democratic. Let us in. So we filmed those three. And all of these films will be made available here, okay? Um, and I also, when... Uh, beyond the Fringe and Monty Python decided to get together for Amnesty, we rang off and said, look, this is a wonderful combination, can we film it? And we said yes, so we then made three films, and The Secret Policeman's Ball, some of you may have seen, but we brought the observational technique to comedy, which was otherwise frozen, okay? And finally, um, when, after the Communist Party series, and that series I did on um, free radio and violence and terrorism in Italy, again observational, and um, I left Granada, and the BBC rang up and said, I don't suppose you'd like to make a series about the police. And at that point in my life, there was the alternative was making a film about Nazis for German television in South America. And I just thought, I don't think so. Um, the police in Britain ought to be more fun than that. And so I asked the various forces, and I chose Thames Valley because it was half metropolitan, and, I mean urban, and half rural. So it's, it was typical, if you like. And the chief constable said, I really, really, really don't want to do this, but I feel it's my public duty. Wow. And because he let us in, Peter Imbert, 
said, you know, he got the, he got the Met. He was the youngest commissioner in the history of the Met because the Home Office looked at him and said, he is a good man. Really. I mean, it was a piece of virtue reward. Yeah. But well, the rape film really was very contentious at the time. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the aftermath one. People have seen the little bit. Okay, now, but what I was going to say was that I chose the subjects to film with them, and the rules of access have all been the same ever since the beginning. What would I want if I was giving access? So they get, we agree the subject, we keep out of their way. If they say it's private, we believe them, and then we ask them to come back in. No lights, no staging. And rape, there were a huge number of complaints by the women's groups that the police were being in, deeply insensitive to rape victims, and the police were in total denial about it, saying it didn't happen, it wasn't true, and so on. And two cases, big, fantastic cases, of a, a woman hitchhiking in uh, East Anglia was... Her, his rape, her rapist was given two years because hitchhiking at 11 o'clock brought it, she brought it on herself, said the judge. And uh, Nicholas Fairburn, who was just exposed recently, was the prosecutor fiscal in Scotland and didn't even prosecute three guys who had raped somebody under a, an underpass. That was the week before our film was shown. Okay? So um, we landed, as Charlie will know, you know, the context of when the news agenda is so rich with a subject, and you then offer a bit of evidence that, you know, that is evidence, that's gold for us. That is gold. Stop you there, Roger. Tom, are we ready to run? It's about four or five minutes, and some of it might be thought by some of us to be upset. Yeah, I can, but do I need to introduce the clip? Uh, well, this is a woman... <coughs> yeah, if you just hold it while Roger introduces it. Okay, so, no, just very briefly. Um, we had tried to get a rape, five different examples of rape uh, allegations in, in the course of a year at Reading Station, and all of them failed for some reason or another. So this was a week before we finish. Somebody rings up and says, "There's a woman here who says she's been raped," and three guys are interviewing her now. She said, "I don't want to be on camera, but you can film the interview from behind my head, and we'll talk about it afterwards." That was absolutely precious that we were behind her head, so the camera, as you will see, is looking right at you. Okay. But I'll probably just go to bed and forget about it. That tends to suggest to me, in other words, that you would probably get over it. That it's something that you can handle, you can control, and then deal with. Yeah. Well, I thought I, I thought I, I thought well, loads of girls get raped and don't report it, and I thought well. Did you say early on in, in this interview that you, you were on a game or been on the game? Or... No, I've never been on the game. You've never been on the game. No, I've never taken money for sex ever. And have you had sex with a lot of men? Well, not really. Well, how many men have you had sex with? Can you count them on one hand, or can you count them on two hands, or three hands, you know? Um, yeah? Can you count them on one hand? Five. Mm. Well, not five. Not five. I have my husband, my boyfriend, a friend of previous two boyfriends. That I've been out with a long time. How long have you been going out with your present boyfriend? Then? Nearly a year. Twelve months, is it? Mm-hmm. Twelve months in November. They're going to ask you all these personal questions in the crown court, and um, you know you're going to go through a, a pretty nasty experience. That's what I was afraid of. That's why we wasn't We've got it. to determine whether what you're telling us is the truth. This is why we've got to determine now before we get to court. Because we don't want to go to court on a case which is a, a shaky case, do we? Mm-hmm. 
you know, one that uh, we're not sure of your allegation. We're a bit uncertain of your allegation. You're also free we're to not sure you whether you're telling us the truth. That's what, that's what I'm saying to you. Now, if I wanted sex, <laughs> I don't know what the difference between love and sex is. So I wouldn't just go for sex. I love my boyfriend. I wouldn't just cut any other bugger. You've, you've told us the events leading up to it. Mm. And you've told us how you went in the car to this house in Coley. Well, and then, and, yeah, and then you've told us nothing more. Mm. You haven't told us what's happened inside the house. Did they, did you get out from the car and just walk into the house, or what? Um, well, the drive got out and walked round. I'm very sceptical. I don't think it happened. I think it happened, But... Don't let us dissuade you from making a complaint. If you want to make a complaint, make one, all right? I don't want you leaving this police station thinking, bloody police, I want to complain about rape, and I'm not going to do anything. If you want to make a complaint, make it. If you don't, say so. We will take a statement off you, and that will be the end of it. It's entirely up to you. What's it going to be? I don't want, I don't want to go to court and go over there. Are you sure? I don't want to put any pressure on you whatsoever. You so can still take you can still take you to doctor and that and prove it if you want no, to. No, we won't see. Besides, if you make a complaint of rape, then we will carry on with our interview to satisfy ourselves that it's happened. Once we're satisfied, then we'll get a doctor in to examine you. All right? If you're not going to make a complaint... Why don't you get a doctor in straight away? No, we're not satisfied at the moment that it's happened. All right? That's why we're talking to you. We do not. What, yeah, if, we what, do. If, what if someone doesn't want to make a complaint, but you believe there is a rape? We can't do anything about it, because if you aren't going to complain, then, as far as I'm concerned, we've got no offence. Because you can't have an offender for an offence that doesn't exist. Much to our annoyance, and believe me, it has happened. Are you prepared to make a statement, and if we apprehend the offenders, are you willing to go to court and give evidence? Well, if you get all three of them, yeah. If we catch one of them, two of them or three of them... No, if you catch one of them, the other two are going to get me, mate. Are you willing... It doesn't happen. No, Are you willing to make a statement and attend court and give evidence? That's what it boils down to. Before judge and jury. I don't want to go to court. Are you sure? then that is your decision. We'll take a statement off you. I'll go and see my inspector now and tell him what's happening. Mm -hmm. And then we'll take a statement off you and you're quite free to leave the police station. Mm -hmm. All right? I don't want to end up in the river, that's all. Oh, come on. This is Reading 1980. It's not bloody Starsky and Hutch. You end up in the river. What's the matter with you? Honestly. I haven't met some of the people either. See what people mean by, you know, it's easiest to not say anything and go through this lark. For sure. You, you know what I mean? I was definitely raped. I've got stomach ache to prove it. And I could prove it was a doctor as well. They got a doctor in and did it straight away. I it would be much easier. I do the 
physical first. And they could prove it one way or the other. And then, then, they, then I'll prove it to them. Oh, thanks. See these cigarettes I get lit for you? They're going to cause me cancer. I'll die through giving people like you cigarettes when I don't smoke. So, Roger, what was the impact of the problem? Well, first of all, 11 million people saw it. 11 million people. It was two places behind Dallas. In fact, the whole series was two places behind Dallas. Thatcher asked questions in Parliament. It was on CBS News. It was on the BBC News the night, the night it was on. It was on Swedish television news. It, went, it, it created such a scandal that the police quietly changed the way they handle rape victims. But the next morning, I had said to, in order to protect that copper so that it wouldn't be ad hominem and it wouldn't just be blaming him, I said, let's have a press conference in which you talk about the women uh, you're going to bring in to do the interviews, the changes you're making to all this, because they'd seen the film. In fact, the really strange thing about this was that we always show the films to participants. The woman didn't want to... Um, do it, but she sold her story to the people and said, if only I'd known I was being filmed, I wouldn't have let them do it, right? I mean, she's talking to the filmmaker, uh, to the sound recorders. But the uh, arena did a special about our whole series and invited the chief superintendent of Reading Station and um, quite a lot of coppers from Reading Station to talk about how public this kind of you know scandal had affected them. And he said... If only we'd seen the film, I wouldn't have let it go out. Well, first of all, he didn't have the right to do that. But he, with BBC, had invited him and the detective inspector and the head of CID to dinner at the top of television centre and showed them the film. And the head of CID said, well, of course, she's not a reliable witness anyway. She's got slightly mentally, uh, has mental difficulties and she'd be a terrible witness. And they, they all saw it. They all saw it, right? But they went straight into denial for about five years. And then the chief constable, uh, Peter Imbert, five years later gave a talk at the Royal Television Society and said, I want to thank Roger because we changed the way. Right? But it took them five years. And quietly, they re- and they still use it in training about how not to do it. Yeah. They still use it. Yeah. But, you know, that's 20, I don't know, how many years? 1982? Well, what, what, what amazes me, moving on to the next clip, what amazes me is it didn't destroy your relationship with certain police officers. No. And somehow or other, you managed to maintain this access that has, after all, let's face it, been the driving force of your talent. How have you pulled that off? Because we play straight, that's all. We just play straight to them, we show it to them. If they say we got something wrong, we change it. If they say that's private, you know, and and it's plausibly private, we delete it. But actually, that's very seldom happened because we try and protect everybody in the film. You know, we don't want to make anyone a fool. Brian Kirk, that Scottish bloke, he was, became a sort of national figure. A year later, he was in the Daily Mail Christmas quiz. Right? People were asking for his autograph on the beach in Spain. But he also lost his job, not because of us. He'd already lost it because of the, the way he acted. And the really interesting thing in terms of um, the sort of presentation of self in everyday life and the sort of Goffman-esque question is how he behaved in front of the camera. And everybody thought it was him acting up for us. But he was like that. We had avoided him for eight months Mm. while filming there because we knew we'd be blamed for his 
you know, style. And actually he was like that. He was obviously like that when he shaved in the morning. That is what he's like. And yet after the film came out, I was trying to do barristers and lawyers. And the law society said, in fact, Richard Scott, who was the judge, a rather famous judge, um, was at that point um, representing them. And, and he and I, we used to play tennis together, right? He was a friend of mine. And he said, I'm not letting you anywhere near us because you're going to do a Brian Kirk on us. And I said, Richard, hello. He's like that. All we did was watch what happened. We didn't stage a minute of it. But they thought I was this devious bugger who was so brilliant at finding the most embarrassing character in the most embarrassing situation. Not true. We just go and what we find. And in British Steel, all these say we say we don't want your most controversial. Yeah, but you do edit. I mean, editing is. Oh yes, of course we. We've got all these hours of stuff. We show it to them. We show it to them and say, did we get it right? Yeah. And they say, I mean, Jeffrey Howe was the minister in the DTI film. And he said, you don't have it right. He said, because uh, we do too much more on paper. We've only got meetings. Right, this is ITV prime time. Right? <laughs> Jeffrey Howe writing is not an obvious prime time moment. Quite. <laughs> Being savage by a sheep, right? Anyway. <laughs> Might even I, have been a dead sheep. Well, no, no, quite. But because we took it seriously... We went back into the rushes, and we found a woman who some of you may have heard of afterwards called Elizabeth Llewellyn Smith, who then ran an Oxford college and became quite a distinguished uh, academic in her own right. She was a PPA, right? She was the lowest civil servant there was, parliamentary assistant, whatever they're called, dictating to the minister, resist the Labour Amendment, right? And we stick it in. It's not a great scene, but it's interesting. And all the critics pick it up. Say, so that's how government works, that PPAs can actually tell ministers what to do. <laughs> so he helped us. The film's more accurate, and he helped us. And that's, I mean, on several occasions when that's happened, yeah. just it's always improved the film. They know the stuff better than we do. So that's why. And because we play straight with them, I mean, McKinsey, for example, had quite a lot of trouble in, internally and were criticized as well for the films we made with them. But they took us out to a very nice lunch, said, we have no complaint with you at all, you played straight, right? So as long as we play straight, then whatever happens <coughs> afterwards, they recognize, you know, we weren't manipulating them. That's yeah. the crucial thing. We just do it the way I would want to be treated, or you would. Tell us how you got into a room. We've got three minutes coming up, number two. How you got into a room with a bunch of police officers in Brixton ah. talking about race? Yes, that's very good, okay? They, when they, and this is the, the basis in which very often we do get in, asked in. Um, the the um, Stephen Lawrence inquiry was about to um, what well, was happening and about to publish, and the commissioner of the Met, Paul Condon, thought you know his job was on the line, and the, the, the rows about racism in the police were enormous. And he and uh, John Grieve, his deputy, and Dennis O'Connor, a friend who was the deputy assistant commissioner, they all called me in for breakfast and said, look. We've been working on race. We know we've got a problem. But no one will believe us because of all the law and stuff. They'll believe you. So you can have the run of the Met for a year, which I did. They gave me the run. And so I was filming with, at the top with the commissioner. They, there was an amazing scene of role-playing Jeremy Paxman <laughs> you know, when he was knowing he was going to have to face, you know, grieve. And then um, at the end of the year, I said, look, you are about to face Jack Straw with the, with the worst you know, possible outcome for you. Um, I'll make a film of the week of hell, media onslaught. Uh, and this is where Channel 4 came in. This is the kind of deal I make with people. I said, look, if it's too awful for you, even though people will see that you were sincere and you tried, we won't show it. 
So having shot for a year with them, we then made a second film in a week about just Paul Condon's Week of Hell called The Siege of Scotland Yard. And fortunately, we watched him watch Jack Straw on a screen bigger than this with 200 officers right behind him and me sitting this close to him filming his reaction to finding out whether he's lost his job. Right? And it so happened he didn't. But he was dead serious about doing something about it, and you see that from the film. So this is Dennis O'Connor taking on, taking the message out, a very unpopular message about institutional racism to Brixton, which is the hot heart of, you know, where a lot of the problems were happening. And we'll have a look at it now. Yes, please. It's called Race Against Crime, this one. And again, I'll give it to the LSE. <laughs> Because of the climate we're in at the moment, so many officers are so reluctant to do stop and searches on black people now. Just the fact that we're under so much pressure. And I don't know, it's just, it's just getting more and more difficult for police officers, really. Backlash against the Met's new emphasis on race has been building up in the ranks. It is openly expressed to Assistant Commissioner Dennis O'Connor in a focus group in Brixton Station. What we feel is, is that we're not being supported. I work on my own. I cannot um, risk stopping somebody on my own, especially if they're black, because my career is on the line. It's as simple as that. Do you think the, in the stops... Uh, we reduce stopping and arresting black people in particular? Is that a consequence? Of Certainly a consequence here yeah. at Brixton because you, you've got a disproportionate amount of black people living in Brixton. <coughs> so obviously if you go out and you stop less people, you are going to stop less black people. That, that's natural. But I think there's a misunderstanding there. So I mean, I did some research. I mean, the black population of Lambeth is only something like 30%. And what amazed me uh, so is when I, when I went to the CRR training, we said, oh, some members of the community will be coming in to talk to you. Every single person was black. But all the time when we talk about community, we often mean the people who are going to pose or they'll have a riot. We won't talk to the people who, who perhaps want. We always talk to people who, who, who will, you know, cause aggravation rather than the community as a whole, the proper community. Well. Are they not part of the community then, those individuals? They are, but they're not exclusive. Well, they are, yeah, but they're not exclusively. It's when you're presented with this is the community, these four black men. We need to turn it around and, and, and turn it around onto the people that are actually committing street crime. Blame them. They're the ones that are, that are making us look bad. Let's shout from the rooftops that this is the amount of robberies that is being done every month and these are the people that are doing it. And also show what we're trying to do about it, that yeah, we're not sitting right. back and just accepting it. People if, moaning about if I, it. If I they? landed here from Mars now, you're all wonderful. You're <laughs> unloved and uncared for and the world just doesn't get the picture. Now, so how does a service like this that, you know, tends to put its arms around one another... How does it ever move on in that basis? I know it's got to. I'm just saying you can see that you will get that response if you say, right, because of this, this is what we're going to do. And now, if some people are prepared to look beyond, to, to get these little blinkers off and look beyond and say, right, I understand where it's going now and see that it's better for us. Some of the racist crimes they have are quite spurious. I mean, one of them involves somebody going to a shop 
claim about the, the sub Now, the really interesting thing about the impact of this film was that the white officers felt listened to, the black officers and indeed the black community leaders appreciated that their point of view was being expressed. And, you know, the, um, they felt it was a very helpful yeah. thing to do. Because, it, I mean, what I was saying at the opening of this uh, media studio this, this evening is that it is my job my task to keep complexity intact, that we don't give easy answers, we don't give sound bites, we don't do that. We just say, this is hard. For example, even though it's done unbelievably crudely, witnesses that are not wonderfully credible and resilient are a problem. And one of the reasons rape convictions are so low is because juries say, oh, well, they were drinking or they're wearing short skirts or they're doing, they blame the victim. So it isn't, you know, and the police know they know that, right? And so they, and the CPS knows that. And so, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling or sort of vicious cycle which just repeats itself where they think, oh, well, we've got to have perfect witnesses and damage, proof of damage, you know, that's to be torn clothing and things like that. So there are, the, the whole criminal justice system is a very messy business. And I don't think we, the media generally, do much service to it by simplifying it and having it all wrapped up by the commercial break. And I'll just tell you quickly a story because it's relevant to this. I was giving a talk about the media and crime at the Cambridge Institute of Criminology. And on the way out to Cambridge, I just grabbed the Evening Standard and counted the number of cop shows on a random Thursday evening. Now, I'd like some guesses from the audience about how many. This is counting the terrestrial and the, um, you know... Channels you've never heard of. Channels, <laughs> channels you've never heard of, yes. How many cop shows do you think there was on a random evening? Fifteen. 15. We've got a bid for 15. 15. Do I hear any more? We've got a bid for seven from Tom. Seven. We'll take... What? 30 is good, yeah. 30. 150. How, how is... No, no. Listen. <laughs> how many? 36. No, it's 57. Oh, my right? goodness. On a random evening. This was not cop show night. Or <laughs> this was just a typical evening. And one of them would even be plausibly... A documentary, and it wasn't. It was sort of traffic cops or something, where they cut all the action together, right? So the picture that even the police themselves, or certainly would-be officers, but their family and politicians and journalists get, is driven by fictional accounts of criminal justice, right? And I do commend to you a film that was on last night called 24 Hours in Custody, which was actually about one particular very frustrating interview with someone who went no comment the whole time, and they kept including that. And I hats off to them, really. You know, one of my colleagues walked on and said, oh, it's too slow. Well, yes, interviews in which nobody talks are slow. So, so, so that's interesting, because that went out last night on, yeah. on as we used to call it, proper telly, Channel proper 4. Proper telly, yes, that's right. Yeah. So there's somebody commissioning, yeah. something like that. There's somebody making it. And yeah. I guess this is something which is a broader issue about whether we could make your kind of programmes today, yes. and you're quite we're good about making, this. You say, yes, yes there is no making, golden age. We we're can making it right now with Avon and Somerset. We're doing a murder inquiry. Yeah. Right now. Real life. They're getting commissioned. They're not getting squeezed yes, out no, by no, multiple no, channels no. and platforms. Well, I'm not saying it's easy. And indeed, the, the trouble really is that the expectations are always that you can predict the number of viewers. This is lovely, right? You don't have to be a psycholinguist to see the problem with this. They're saying, we want to have something that's fresh, and it's a breakthrough, and that you can tell us how many viewers you're going to see and exactly what market's going to have. 
Ah, yes, yeah. I think there's a problem there. But that's what we're up against. The, 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 you know, the number of viewers are falling. The expectation that we can predict them and sell them, therefore, to advertisers or just to commissioners is going up. Right? The, the, the agenda is being simplified, but the quality of the work is still very, very good. And there are a bunch of people whom you would think of are people you admire who are yes, generation, two generations younger than you doing it. Okay, now listen, before you guys leave, let me just tell you a film to look up, right? Yeah, um, this is a bad LSE habit, leaving before a thing is over. No, no, I, I have okay. an obsession about it, actually. No, no, it's fine. No, I just want to tell you. There's a film called Syria Across the Lines, which is shot in the, one Syria. village across either side of a river by a guy called Ali Lambert, who first got access to one side, came back, looked at the footage, managed somehow or other to get access to the government side, with the rebels, and he films the same, people, you know, the same village attacking one another in such an intimate way that you will learn more about the Syrian conflict from that one piece of documentary footage in one village than all the news reports put together. Made by a young guy commissioned made by... Made by a young guy called Ali Lambert, made for dispatches at Channel 4. So he's one of the Lambert clan. Is he? I don't know. Okay, you, you can go now. Should we let them out? Should we let them out? <laughs> no, I just, uh, you'll miss it if you don't. Do yeah, you're missing amazing clips. Of course. An incredible job opportunity. <laughs> uh, you talked about the risk of simplifying. What about academics? Seems to me, Roger, you've never used them. You know, I mean, it's sort of, you conceive the ideas, you talk to your friends and so on, you go into this, you negotiate the access, all the stuff that uh, we write in criminology and so on doesn't inform your work if anything it's over complex would that be a caricature of no there's a us? difference no there's a difference between um, I, I don't want to be rude about my colleagues okay it's not a question we of, can uh, take it no no I wouldn't do that because I have huge respect for my colleagues oh it's that bad is it yeah. no no it's not <laughs> with respect <laughs> um, no it's true I do but my task is to reach as many people as possible and to do that authentically, right? So it's with evidence that everybody can use. And their task is to analyze mm. the data and to do it in a different way so that experience doesn't drive what they do, it drives what I do. So my book on young offenders is a description of the life of you know, five, six young offenders. My book on the police is a series of interviews with 600 coppers about their lives yeah. and there's no data analysis in any of it and there are no footnotes uh, and so in that sense what, I try and keep complexity without being complicated yeah. is that a distinction? Yeah, with a difference? I hope so absolutely. and also complementary between yes. academics yes yes well, I mean some of my best friends are academics <laughs> we're going to go into a Q&A but I, I, wanted, I wanted to have a little glimpse of the work that Roger's also done in the field of social services and care, yes. because in looking at the materials, uh, thinking about today, uh, I think one of the most remarkable things is how you've maintained a commitment to humanity on the edges. Yes. And also public servants. Yeah. Police, you deal with them so sympathetically, and there's such a lot of stuff you've done about kids, yeah. uh, about the lost people in our society. Yes. This is emblematic. It's a little story. You know the one that's to Chris and yes. Connor. Talk us into that. It's self-contained about five minutes, and then we'll go into a Q&A, aiming still to finish it about half seven. Fine. So. Okay. This is from a film called Kids in Care, in which, again, there are huge numbers, many, many thousands, I can't remember all of them, just the tens of thousands of kids in care, totally forgotten about, and only 3,000 every year are adopted. And so we just thought it's important to look at the lives of children in these care homes. 
And really what you were saying, Connor, is right. That I'm very interested in the lives of invisible people, okay? And so that's what I use the film for. And um, we, we got access to the Coventry Social Services and they, this care home. Again, it's one of their better care homes. And the kid, we, we decided to follow a few children in the home over six months. We followed them over quite a long time. And this boy, Connor, was 15, had a very interesting, and this is, in terms of sociology, crucial, a key relationship with his mother that was the driver for his life. He adored his mother, who was both on drink and on drugs and was regularly in prison for thieving, and he would go in through the transom and stuff occasionally when he was eight or nine, and they would be fencing stolen goods at car boot sales. So they had a very good relationship doing bad things, as it were. Okay? And um, he went into care, and this was his fifth care home and had already been with 12 foster parents, okay? And he was 15, by now 14, 15. Anyway, he had been promised to visit his mum, which he would have to do escorted, and there were no social workers to take him. And so he had missed by three or four weeks the chance to visit his mum, and he was kicking up rough. And he'd, by rough I mean, on the previous occasion, he'd held a knife to his social worker for like an hour, um, and when he was 12, and now, at this point, he was very, very unhappy about the fact that he was missing his visits to his mum. And so Chris, the 21-year-old probation uh, social worker, has managed to arrange uh, that he will get a visit, but it, not this weekend, it'll be the weekend after when he can be escorted, when there's, because staffing shortages have, you know, they sound administrative, but the human consequences when you can't be let out of your cell or, you know, taken to visit your parents or whatever are colossal, and so this was an indication of it. Okay, so Chris is on the phone from his main office to the care home. Because you've got the history, I wanted to know what, if any, difference you, you had, had seen in Mum. For me, that was really important. Because, you know, we believe that people can move on with support. What I found through the contact, there's no, there no obvious evidence of risk. However, she's living with a new partner. He's also out of work. They're living on £60 a week. Um, she's doing car boots, as she calls it, on a weekly basis. And I think the risk is minimised because of his age. However, if it was me, I would still want some kind of monitoring of that. I well, Grange dropping Yeah, we've said that. Yeah. No, right, yeah. Grange taking him and picking him up and to put a working agreement in place. That she knows the game and then she knows what we've got to do. Because she even said, when well, they've seen the house tidy now, don't worry about it. Let's not come to my house, then. <laughs> <laughs> An hour later... Chris calls Connor with what he thinks is good news. Hello, Connor. How are you? Now, I have had a chat with um, the two Sues, as it would be, in our office, uh, and we are going to give you an unsupervised contact. Well, what I'm I need to talk to Simon, so don't say anything, but I've got to double-check with him about um, them taking you down and picking you up, because that's our way of making sure everything's going OK as well. OK. Now, does that... What do you mean? No, no, no. There's other reasons for it, Connor. This is the way we're doing it. All right? Mate, don't ruin it now, Connor. Connor. Connor, Connor. Connor, don't lose your rag over it. You've got pretty much what you wanted. Connor. 
Yeah, I am. Ah, you're right, Alex. As he walked off, yeah? All right, Alex, that's lovely. All right, see you later, mate. Okay, bye-bye. How was he? Um, not brilliantly happy. Connor's recent visit has made him want to see his mum even more. He's owed three visits, so he's not prepared to wait. Hello. Hi, Chris Rogers here to see Connor. Thank you. Yeah. Connor, you all right? Do you want to have a chat? Yeah. Can't sit next to you. That all right? I'm not going to take offence. You've got pretty much what you wanted. No, I ain't, Chris, and you know I haven't. So what haven't you got that you wanted? What I, want, I want a contact now. What, now? Right now? Yeah. You're not going to get it right now. I've just well, told you when you I'm going to aim for. That's what you think. Connor, I don't want to fall out with you over this, mate. Mm. Because I actually thought ringing you up this morning, I'd have some good news for you, that you can have it, and you'd be quite happy about it. But you're doing the same thing. You push the goalpost each time. You get one bit, and then you want more and more and more and more. It doesn't work like that, mate. What, so I've got to buy about every single fucking thing you said? You no, have for the contest. Fuck off, go no, no. See you later, bye. Fuck off. Because Connor is owed visits, Chris goes to see the Grange manager to try and fix an earlier trip to see his mother. It's agreed. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Simon. Chris goes to give Connor the good news. And I've just got to find him now. Ah, get on our staff to find out where he is. But he's stormed off. Connor, I've got something to tell you, mate. Do you not want to know what me and Simon have agreed? You don't want to know that you can have contact in like a week and a half. Because I can do what the fuck I want, when I want, how I want. I want you to fuck off. I want a different social worker. That's what I want. You put that in writing and I'll take it to I Sue. I will. I want you no, to so do I'm asking you just you to do it. You chat so much shit out of your fucking mouth. It's unreal. All right, Connor. I've seen what he's done to others. Seen the bruises on stuff's heads and things like that. Problem is, he's probably going to get in trouble now and wreck it, which will be the problem. I think you will be. Yeah, what I'm just being careful of is nothing comes flying over at my car halfway past. Do you think you will be? Could imagine him doing it. See? That will probably be the last time I work with Connor now.
By the way, that was a Panorama special that went out at 9 o'clock on BBC One, an hour-long film. And then we did The Truth About Adoption, which was another one. And Cameron saw that and said he was going to speed up the adoption process. So that was part of the sort of an old in Coventry. Yeah. Uh, questions and answers, Roger, should we do that now? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, we've covered our... Assuming people just, have questions. Assuming they do. Uh, it'd be good to say who you are, I think. For example... Distinguished filmmaker, for example, <laughs> purely hypothetically in your case. No, I'm sorry, Wood. Wait a second, no, no, just oh, we've got the lady right at the back, uh, and we have you, and we have Tony. So let's take them. Yes, why not? Well, as long as you've got a microphone. Yeah, and say who you are and what you do. So that, I'm Simon Wood, I'm a television director. What's obviously really striking about your work is the honesty of what you get, and I wondered if there were any special techniques that you use to distract people from, from what you're specifically doing. I mean, some of that stuff now would be done with fixed rig cameras yes. to, to avoid people being aware of the yes. camera being there. Yes. What techniques do you use? Well, it's can, we, can we take three in a row? Oh. Otherwise, what will happen is okay. we'll run out of time, if you don't mind. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, uh, and at the back, already with a microphone. Stunning. Right already, yeah. Good. Hi, uh, Ellen Helsper. Um, I'm an associate professor here at the Department of Media and Communications. I actually want to follow up a little bit on a comment that was made earlier about the editing, because you, you, know, say you represent uh, authenticity and things like that, but you must have hours and hours and yes. hours and hours the of The ratio is about material. 30 to 1, 35 to 1 yeah. normally. So... You, you have to make decisions, and you're making these decisions. Even if you're showing this final product to them, they, they are not there when making decisions. So I'm just sure. wondering if you could talk a little bit more about times where you might have felt uncomfortable with the decisions that you had to make, or when you were thinking, like, what is the authentic bit here? Or sure. how okay. I would like to know a little bit okay. more about that. Brilliant. Um, thank you very much. And one more before we go back to Roger. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, hi, I'm Tony Travers from the LSE, Roger. Um, when you've made these films, and I mean, it was particularly um, sharp, I thought, in the, very, in, the, in the last piece we've just watched, do you have an, a sense of what you would hope the impact was, and if so, on whom to do what? Okay. Great. Rather than, because otherwise... You watch the final piece of film, and others will have reacted in different ways, no doubt, but there's a thing, what, what might somebody do next? Yes, okay. To do well, there, something there, about something. No, no, it's a very good question. Great. They're very, all very good questions. Three concise questions. Okay, I'll try and keep the answers. I, I, I'm implying the same for you, but I we want to have another round or two. No, no, I'll do my best. Okay. okay. Um, have you ever seen the Japanese No Theatre? Has anyone seen the No Theatre or Kabuki? Right? How many people have ever seen it? Because otherwise... I'll yeah, not quite enough. But what they do is they keep the lights on the whole time. The actors come on full dress, very full in costume, and say, I'm you know, Kokio, the chief of this, whatever. And as the play unfolds, there are these guys and women in black who move around the stage, moving the, the furniture, the stage hands. They're stage hands. But it's not, it doesn't go down mysteriously as it does in the Western theater. It all happens in full view. But the, black, uh, stage, the people dressed in black have declared themselves invisible. Right? So I use that with my crew and say, we declare ourselves invisible. We wear exactly what everybody else wears. We are friendly and sweet to them when we go for drinks or whatever it is afterwards or beforehand. But when we're filming, we never look at them. 
We simply never look at them. And I also make a point of, of never, if possible, outnumbering them. So in that rape scene, I was in the next room. And I came in when they left, and she asked, the, the, cop, the cop said, do you want the camera crew here? She said, well, no, really. And then when they went out, I went back in and talked to her and said, are you sure? Because I think we're protecting you. And she said, actually, you're right. Come on back in. But, I mean, I was risking the film filming, because I trusted my cameraman Charles Stewart so completely and his own that I thought it was more important that we didn't outnumber them or even <coughs> so that's how I do it. We keep our numbers to a minimum we hide all the equipment we ever get a cupboard or we put it under the table I have sometimes sat under a table so nobody could see me um, we, are, we do everything possible to avoid distracting them. We want to bore people to death by our presence. Right? We never say, do you mind turning a little more to the right do you mind take two? We don't do take two Right? We just, if we don't get it, we don't get it. So it's by minimizing our presence that that's the answer to your question. But I will say, in the school film, I said to the teacher at Ackland Burley at the end of our filming, by the way, I hope we were you know, discreet and you know, we didn't disturb you. She said, no, no, it was absolutely fine. <coughs> just like having a rock group in the corner. <laughs> but we did say to the kids, if you ever look at the camera, we're going to switch it off. Right? So that was the deal. If they ever looked at it, so they never do. I mean, it's an hour-long film. Never see the kids look at the camera, which is quite interesting. And we, that, that's sort of what we do with anybody. Nobody ever looks at the camera unless we actually ask them to. Right, second question was about editing. And um, yes, it's perfectly true. We are, I mean, one wonderful editor of my Clive Warren wrote a book on the art of documentary, and he talks about us creating 19th century novels yet out of this material. We have novelization with sort of little, you know, and very often the rough cut of two hours or three hours is the best because it's got all the nuances and it has all the eddies and tributaries there. Um, but if we've got a slot of an hour, we do the best we can to reflect what we've seen um, in that hour. And that's one of the reasons we show it to people, so that we say, did we get the balance right? So um, film we made inside a school for the most disturbed children, uh, kicked out of infant school, three to five-year-olds, kicked out of school already uh, in Swindon, um, showed it to the, the parents. They said, yeah, these kids are just noisy, difficult, that's just what it's like. The teachers at this school said, wait a minute, we've got a half hour every afternoon with these very noisy kids when they lie on a mat and are quiet. It's missing. This is ITV prime time again. And I said, okay, she's right. And we put it in, and actually the film was better because of it, because of the rhythms were not so relentlessly noisy. So in that sense, the editing, of course, it, it, it is a, it's a version Right? But one of the reasons we like showing it to people is they can then use it themselves to tell other people about what they do rather than just a promotional video. It is you know, an independent witness of, of what their work is. But it's always less than the real thing, and it's less than the rushes, and it's less than the two-hour version, and so on. You know, It's a real problem. And we also have to make sure people understand. Now, just the point that you're making, Tony, as well, it sort of speaks to that. The decision series, for example, I was let in on the Occidental Petroleum decision about the Piper Alpha oil field because they thought that Tony Benn, then the minister, didn't understand how risky and financially dangerous it was in the North Sea, which is the worst place to explore uh, oil in the, in the world. There's nine different currents and so it's a disaster. So for Occidental, he was the target, and that's why they let us in. Okay? So... From my point of view, the North Sea oil and petro the petroleum revenue tax, all of that was big news. And I felt curious myself. I wanted to understand what was going on in North Sea oil. 
So most of my motives in doing this, at least, is for me to understand. And then, if we've understood something that people need to grasp, to share that with first the, both the top, if you like, or the people, decision makers, wherever that structure is, and everybody else. So, because I'm a great believer in representative democracy and participatory democracy, I think people need to have the information to judge what people are telling them in power. So it's very much for me a political process of informing the electorate, okay? So we did show it to Ben. We invited him to the screening, and he said, oh, golly, I didn't realize that, right? So from their point of view, it was a total success. But from ours, it was, you know... And this, by the way, what I'm proud of in the audience uh, response is that we thought North Sea Oil, you know, lots of pictures of crashing waves and oil platforms and, you know, the drama of the helicopters, all that stuff, right? In the end, we are just in their uh, Park, uh, Park Lane office, right, in their high, just in their office with the uh, geologists and the chief executive trying to decide whether, and get this, you know, I tell you this is because I remember it from 1976, being privileged to this, to decide whether they spent in those days 100 million bucks on how much, you know, on developing this oil field. They sink for $10 million dollars a two-mile-down tube with a nine-inch tube within that tube, the nine-inch capsule, that captures the sand and the oil and whatever it is, and they have to deduce from this little thing about the size of this jug, right, how much oil there is likely to be in five years if they invest $100 million, and what the oil price will be to make it worth, you know, what was then, I think, was the Republic Bank. I remember them having the argument with the bank about giving them $100 million bucks to to do it. Now, to me, that is incredibly dramatic. And we didn't need the um, North Sea. We didn't need anything else. We just were in on their uncertainty. And that is what drives the films. And that's what when people in power see these films, they realize they're seeing something different. They're, they're seeing evidence. Like Cameron when he saw and, and um, his advisor on adoption whose name has just gone out of my head but uh, used to run the prison service, you know. Um, he, was, he wrote about it in the Times and just said, this film is the point. These were six kids over nine months waiting to be adopted, and three of them had been given back without any notice or explanation to Coventry Children's Services. And you just say, this is wrong, right? And so the, the gut response, the reason why I'm making the distinction between the academic work and what we do, is that the gut response, as you felt, right, watching that film, just now, if you, you felt both for the kid and for the social worker, right? He's 21 years old. He doesn't know what to do. He's got brought good news, but he can't give him the best news. And what does he do? He gets his car attacked, right? And sometime later, he, he apologize, Connor apologizes. And you can see Chris te- tearing up, and, you know, he's, it's, and you just feel that, right? And the same with the rape. You're in the situation. So your response is different. And then you start analysing. Then you use the tools that Tim and others have Three more, maybe? Are there any hands? We've got a lot of hands. We've got a gentleman here. We've got a lady here. And we've got David and Charlie. We'll do four. And we might run over about five minutes. Can we just listen? But they need to be pretty quick, folks. Uh, I'm sorry this, I'm talking Yeah, so this much, gentleman I'm... and then this lady and then the two I've pointed out. Yeah. Peter Jones. I'm a governor at LSE. Uh, I'm fascinated with your observation of the police force over 50 years. What's your feeling about the direction of travel of the British police force and the overall quality that you view at the end? Very good, Peter. I was thinking about that one myself. Very good. Uh, Madam, 
Lady, um, I'm Lucy Stiliano. I'm a erstwhile TV producer and I used to work at Channel 4. I'm used really to work in- for me? Yes, I used to work for you. Oh, no fan interventions no, no. allowed. I was really interested, actually, you made two allusions. One about uh, the number of police procedurals and sole but not real documentary about police work that we now consume on a daily basis, but also about the expectations of commissioning editors. And I do, how concerned are you about what I would call constructed documentary, which is in many ways the bastard offspring of your filmmaking, and how do you deal with that? Very good. Thank you very much. The uh, constructed documentary, which I think we have it. Give me one example of exactly the kind of no, show I you're talking about. You, I don't know. Well, Benefit Street would Benefit be Street, a perfect okay. example That's of all right. That. We've got it. Thank you. Uh, yes. Got a microphone? Yeah, David Lewis from Social Policy. It's just a question about technology. I was interested in your earlier comments about how these new small cameras in the 60s made it possible to make this kind of film. And uh, the technology has obviously moved on a lot since then. Has that made your life easier or more difficult? Thanks. And Charlie, seeing who you are, and very quickly. Yeah, Charlie Beckett, LSE. It's really a compendium of the last two questions, which is, in a way, we're in a golden age of documentary. It's never been easier to make factual movies. It's never been easier to distribute them, uh, to find platforms for them. And yet, as has been alluded to, no, you spoilt it for everybody else. Nobody else will ever allow a documentary crew in again like that. And also that the public are now so media literate, they'll never just sit by and allow someone to watch. Or do you disagree? Great. Four. Quick That's not a question, Charlie. Yeah. Well, we know, Charlie. It's a statement. Inviting a Okay, response. well, I'll try and deal with... Um, the first... For my, just can you remind me? I'm sorry. Yeah, Peter is on the police. Yeah, the, what the police like. Okay, that's a... You know, can we have a whole session at the LSE, please, with Tim on the direction of Tim travel? Tim's up there. I mean it. Can we do that on the direction of travel, please? It's a very good question. In sum, I would say that the police, whether it's drag kicking or screaming or not, which I think probably we would agree they were, are now aware of their impact on the public. You know, the, the police used to be somebody that dealt with the working class behind, you know, anybody else, you know, in the factory gates, places where in the slums and so on, and they didn't really, you know, the, the rest of us, if you like, liked them very much. In the 60s, you know, they had 96% approval rating in the 60s, you know, until the scandal started coming out, until the riots started happening, until people, students were starting to be beaten up by the police, things that had happened for 100 years to working class people suddenly happened to <laughs> the other people who then became judges and you know, lawyers and it wasn't a great idea piece of PR. Now even after G20 there is some sense and we made a we showed the film here, the G20 film there is a, a sense in which their actions have consequences So, and I think there is enough conversation that is serious and I've been an advisor for 15 years on the race uh, IAG um, they're not there yet but at least they're asking the question. So in that sense, 15 years after uh, McPherson, the notion of institutional racism is finally being looked at and so on. You know, it's a very slow process. It's turning a tanker around in the, in the, in the English Channel, but it's, I would say it's better than it was. That's all I can say. And it's still terrible. Lucy's on Benefit Street, constructed documentaries. Yes, now, constructed documentaries is a different problem. Um, Simon's point about the multi-camera rigs, I'm perfectly happy with. I think 24 hours in A&E is really good. Then they observe the rules of documentary. The only test I have for constructed documentaries is if you learn something. And if what you learn is authentic. As long as the people in the film have agreed, right? 
um, then I have, I'm not sitting in moral judgment on everybody saying they have to do it my way. I don't believe that. So, for example, faking it, I thought was really interesting. I mean, really interesting. That people could pre- pretend and discover that they could be a painter, that were accepted with exhibitions and so on, or a cook good enough to be offered a, a job in a top restaurant at the end of a month. I mean, that's the empowering of the viewer, which I like. And somebody did a thesis for the LSE years ago about the talk sh- not the talk show, but the kind of Jerry Springer type, you know, Robert Kilroy in those days, Kilroy, that they were suddenly on the same platform as ministers and experts like me, and I've been in those situations, and that was empowering. So if it's empowering, it's okay. So in Benefit Street, which everybody else has been rude about, the second episode about the Romanian refugees, which was, had subtitles and really told you how awful their lives was, was worth it. To me, that, they were invisible people being honored, if you like, by the attention that we all paid to them. So to me, as long as everyone knows what they're doing, what the terms are, and something good comes of it, that's the Tony Travers test. You know, I hope people really will be paying different attention differently if the Romanians move in next door. Okay, yeah. that's that's the second thing. Now the th- David th- on technology has it. I mean, no, well, the, da- oh, the technology is a problem. Is a mixed blessing. Of course, everybody can now shoot, um, and therefore the user-generated content. That if if you don't know this website Demotics, I urge you to look at it. Because it's all user-generated content, and it's brilliant. And very often they have stuff that nobody else has ever shot. Um, the Sri Lankan stuff, the Killing Fields in Sri Lankan film, was really a lot mostly shot by people with their mobile phones, right? So to me, it's incredibly important and really useful that they do it. However, what's also possible is to manipulate the footage. And the danger is that because you can technically put anybody's voice or put their heads on, do all of that, that you know you have to have moral... Um, a moral compass to use this technology right and all the embarrassments about selfies and sex, you know, sex pictures and so on being posted and harassment you know, it's, it's a Pandora's box but I think enough good things come of it so that I, you know, I support teaching people media literacy I will come and happily speak to your students about it and I mean it too I think media literacy is the only way people can possibly be aware of the manipulation that is being done to them all the time. Right. Uh, on Charlie, I'm going to paraphrase. Oh, yes. Where would you like to do a fly in the wall documentary now, and would you get access? The LSE. <laughs> <laughs> well, every year for the last few years has been very exciting. Every year. I'd love to do it here. Uh, this media studio, last thing before I hand back to Adrian, and there's drinks outside. What should we do with this media studio? There we have this fantastic studio, but we're academics. We write books of footnotes. What's it for? In you, what's your advice to Adrian, who's running it, Claire, who conceived it? What should we do with it? Okay, I would tell that use the test for all these brilliant people that are here. Tell what you're trying to uh, talk about to an intelligent nine-year-old. And that's a pretty good test. Well, I think we are sort of, I think, intelligent seven or eight. I don't think we've made it yet <laughs> to nine, but we've appreciated enormously what you've said, but I don't want to preempt your oh. order. Thanks, I'm moving out of the way for you. Okay, okay. thank you yeah, very okay. much. Um, I, a round of applause, please. For, 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 for. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was an absolutely fascinating uh, conversation and some amazing, breathtaking filmmaking as well. Um, I, I think the phrase which perhaps has stayed with me and perhaps resonates with our world, uh, keeping complexity intact without being complicated. 
Uh, and you, you talk of impacts. Uh, impact is very big in our world, and I think impacts of 11 million viewers changing police practice uh, and showing how government works to the greater mass of people are very valid and very exciting impacts uh, and absolutely to be applauded. Um, I've got a few thank yous to um, round off with. Um, uh, the, the Media Studio has been funded by the annual fund uh, of our alumni uh, and I have to pay credit to their, their vision uh, and their generosity in, in backing this. Uh, and a special thanks has to go to Claire Sanders who soldiered through to get this happening and it was very hard. <laughs>